Um, and with that, I am delighted um, to welcome Dr. Jeff Cohen. He is the um, Chair of Neurology and a Professor of Neurology um, to welcome today's speaker. This is a joint Medicine Grand Round spoke, uh, co-sponsored by the Department of Neurology, and we're really grateful um, to Jeff for bringing a great speaker today. So it's always fun to come here and see how much more food is available for the medicine people than the neurology people. We're, we're actually going to do an outcome study on this and look at BMIs and all of that. But um, I'm really happy to be able to introduce Barbara. She's really been a star in the field of neurology. She's one of the first people really to become interested and expert in neuroepidemiology and her career path has really encompassed all of the subspecialties of neurology. Um, She's presently the chair of neurology at Mount Sinai, and having been at Mount Sinai and colleagues that have been there, anybody that can be chair at Sinai has to be blessed. It, it's a difficult place to be a chair, and Barb has served in that position extraordinarily well. And I still have friends there, and they tell me that, so it is true. She has an 85-page CV, so I could read it, and we'd be here until uh, noontime, but I'll just uh, pick little snippets of it. Um, she was president of the American Neurological Association. It used to be an elitist organization of white males. She's done a lot to improve its image. Um, she served well in that capacity. She's been on review panels for about every federal agency there is, including the Institute of Medicine. Uh, she has over 145 peer-reviewed publications. She's a terrific speaker. And probably the most important thing is, like me, she's an Okie, born in Oklahoma City. So there you go. So we've risen out of that place. So, But you've done much better, by the way. So. I'm really happy to introduce Barbara. Thank you. It's great to be here. Don't work me now. Can hear me? Okay, good. Great. Um, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, uh, I do have a small area variation slide in homage to all the um, amazing um, health services research that's uh, uh, come from Dartmouth. And so um, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. And thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, it's, it's really a pleasure and, and uh, uh, to uh, come and also to know another Sinai person here. So um, let me um, just get into um, uh, this uh, work. I'm going to start with a clinical case. I'm going to talk about the when one door closes, and I'll have a little quiz at the end of who knows the end of the quote, so don't look it up on your cell phone in the interim. Um, talk a little bit about transitioning from fee-for-service to value-based payment, and then talk about team care delivery models, which is really my passion, and then uh, talk about where we might be going in the future. Um, as we were talking last night, that's assuming that global warming doesn't take us somewhere else first. But um, hopefully we'll, we'll do that. So I'm going to start with this case. And, and I know it's neurological, but just bear with me because the, the main point is what's in the highlights. So there's a 40-year-old man who developed some headaches, exhaust PCP, got a non-contrast brain MRI. Um, okay. And then two weeks before presentation, developed major vertigo. 
this is a real case adapted, right? Saw an ENT who referred him to another ENT, said you should get balance testing. And then that ENT said, well, I'm not really sure what this is. Let's get another MRI with and without contrast. Patient was going to have to wait a week and was really worried. And his wife said he's just so uncomfortable, the bad headaches, the vertigo, they've really worn him out. A lot of impact on his quality of life. They know somebody at a medical center. They get an urgent MRI over the weekend. That was the second MRI, not the third, sorry. And then he gets seen the next, you know, the following Monday by a headache specialist who's like a neurologist, but just gives him a metrol pack. And then, because there's a neurootologist who is somehow connected to this patient, uh, sees him a few days later and cures him, that is true, neurologists cure things, many things now we treat very effectively, but you can actually cure somebody with benign positional vertigo with a maneuver that gets the particles back in the right part of the canal. So <clears throat> we're going to come back to that case, but I just want to remind folks, just this is a very brief summary of um, payment policies under health insurance, so which it's a reminder this emerged in the US in the early middle 20th century, was really largely focused on acute care because that's where we had emerging therapies. And um, then um, uh, uh, Medicare came uh, in the, in the mid-60s mid and for um, employed people and eventually with Medicare, those over 65, this model, which was all basically fee-for-service payment, was from where things used to be, it was a pretty good model for access and um, for coverage, at least for those segments. Um, but payment was linked exclusively to volume, meaning the quantity of things you did with a patient. It was not at all linked to outcome, which we're still not quite there. And really, the first major constraints on this, just paying for every day, every visit, was when the prospective payment system was introduced in the mid to late 80s. Uh, some of you in the room may remember when that happened. Um, there was a lot of concern at the time. This was sort of a big policy change. So instead of, um, when, I, I, when I was in medical school, um, I learned a lot about patient neurology because I was at Duke and people were referred from all over the Southeast and they were all admitted, even if they had outpatient conditions because there really weren't any constraints on that, and we'd follow them every day, and it was, it was a great way to learn neurology. But with the prospective payment system, that all got changed dramatically, and hospitals were basically paid a lump of money for a given category of condition, and that changed the incentives. But the concern was, well, will hospitals start discharging people sick, and they're going to do badly? And so there was actually a national study of the introduction a health policy study of the, of the um, introduction of the prospective payment system. It was actually conducted by folks at UCLA and the Rand Corporation. It was a whole issue of JAMA in 1990. And basically, they showed that um, overall, it looked like people were not discharged. They were, they were not uh, dying after discharge, although they were somewhat sicker at the time they were discharged, as might be expected. But it, it looked like it was basically being handled safely. And of course, that incentivized a whole lot of changes in hospitals. They started putting their machinery in place to um, try to 
work toward discharge, obviously to keep people from being admitted who didn't really need an inpatient setting. And here's, um, uh, so uh, I trained at uh, uh, my uh, fellowship training was in the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program at UCLA. Chuck Lewis was the chief of general medicine at the time there, really a brilliant um, health services researcher. He came out of Kansas, a neighbor of Oklahoma, and uh, he actually in 69 had a New England Journal article on small area variations, and he looked at records from the Kansas Blue Cross Association. <laughs> found three to four-fold variations in regional rates for the performance of six common surgical procedures. And obviously, a whole, this is on a whole field very much developed here through um, uh, Winberg and colleagues that really took that work forward and has really been a major force in driving a lot of why questions. Like, well, because the first thing is, well, why is there all this variation? It's not because... You know, more people need appendectomies, three times more need them in one hospital unit than another. It can't be based on clinical. Um, so going back to that case, I counted six physicians, two MRIs, a balanced lab test, a couple of misdiagnoses, and at least three weeks of vertigo that could have been cured like the day it came on. And my point here is that under what we have now, which is still largely fee-for-service, certainly in the outpatient setting, there's really no incentive for health systems to figure out how to change that kind of a pathway so that someone is evaluated sooner, treated sooner, and, and avoids this morbidity and all the extra resource utilization. And I want to make it clear, believe me, in this scenario, everybody was trying to figure out how to help this person. This is not that, oh, let's just do order more tests because we can make more from it. it. It really was a scramble. But there wasn't, stepping back, overall an incentive for a, a, you know, a hospital president or a health system president to say, oh, let's look at the way we evaluate vertigo and figure out a different kind of pathway and put that in place, which is not necessarily an easy thing to do. And for the people who... Um, uh, I'll be talking to the neurologist later. They know about with stroke care. Uh, when I trained, we went in and saw the strokes the next day. I mean, there was no acute stroke therapy. When that came into play uh, in the 90s, then all these things had to change once the trials came out about the effectiveness of therapy within three hours. And, the, the, of course, what happened was it took decades, literally, and policy changes because there was no there was no direct financial incentive for hospitals to say, well, let's get our radiologists together with our stroke doctors and with the ED docs and work out all these care pathways so that we can get people in to get this acute treatment rapidly. There was just no no incentive financially to do that, even though there was evidence that that was the best therapy. And so that kind of process diffused very very slowly. So. Um, that's the fundamental problem, I think, is that the, the payment policies can really incentivize changes that can be for the good. Um, and, and that's where the, 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 the rub is, is, is how do we figure out how to do that? This is a slide everybody's seen. And um, let's see, when I trained, it was right about here. And so the graph ended here. And it looked the same as it does today. It's just gone out 20 years. <laughs> so it's, 
just an even steeper slope that the U.S. is in the black. And by all the metrics, we spend a ton more than developed countries on healthcare. And um, there's a lot of data that while we do that, and there's a lot of things we invest in that are fantastic, we don't really have better, um, a lot of population metrics than other countries. And even looking internally, when you look across, you know, a set of, oops, sorry, a set of studies of, um, of, you know, this is just a sample of health services work that's been done in the last, you know, the early 2000s, somewhat earlier as well. Like this was a study of, um, all right, a broad range of conditions in an adult U.S. sample of, of evidence-based therapies. And when they did a national study, Beth McGlynn and that group out of Rand, they found that only about half the time were those therapies used. And you can look across, they did a national pediatric sample. It's well known that hypertension, there's only 50%, or maybe that's pinched up some since the 2010, that's both recognized and controlled when you do um, the, the, from the NAME study. Um, we've looked at um, uh, post-stroke or post-seat carotid arterectomy control of risk factors. There's a captive population who you think they're at high risk for, for more events or or for a re, re, re stenosis, and you know, a year after their cryonarterectomy, only a third have control of their blood pressure and lipids. And then we've done some work in dementia care delivery. And the, the goal, ideally, would be somewhere closer to 100%. So we're investing a lot and having relatively low amounts of, uh, of uptake of evidence-based therapy or quality. So I'm going to come back to this notion about value-based payments, and I, after last night's discussion, I'm going to take the word value-based out. But really the idea is it's instead of paying for every visit and every MRI and each individual item, it's the concept uh, is that you would pay for a, um, a population's, and maybe you could think of it as an example, as managing, say, a thousand dementia patients in your health system. And you would negotiate for a price to be paid for that. And you would have to meet certain quality benchmarks. So if you can't get away with letting people die off because they've been you know, bad care. So you have to meet quality goals, which is, oh, we're still not, you know, we have a few quality goals out there on the inpatient side, not a lot in other settings, but we're starting to get there. Um, and you are incentivized then because if you, if you're able to manage these patients, meet the quality goals, and you don't spend all the money you negotiated, you can keep some of those savings. Now there's like a 50 different flavors of that, obviously, but the idea is that then the health systems have some skin in the game, they're, they're at risk financially, but they're also not constrained to only my physician can get paid for doing something. It's like, well, if you have a team of social workers and MPs and, and, and uh, community health workers or whoever we have evidence can provide care that meets higher quality goals or quality measures, uh, then you can do that. You have under, again, the sort of an ideal type of, of value-based payment or whatever you want to call it. So, but if think about it, that really turns the incentives upside down. And think about that first case. You could imagine that if, if management of acute vertigo then became something where the goal was to 
diagnosed properly early and get the right tests or treatments early uh, without going through a hundred things that aren't relevant uh, or effective, then uh, you would be potentially motivated to figure out how to set up your health system in a way that would do that under this kind of payment policy, theoretically. Um, okay, and I just went through that slide. Um, so, um, where are we now? We were again talking about this at dinner um, because the promise of shifting payment policy as a way to improve quality and reduce cost, because stepping back, that's how the major payer, CMS, is looking at it. Um, but what's happening right now? And what's happening right now is sort of this are we in transition or are we not? Certainly the incentives have not changed. The policies have not changed fully. We're nibbling around the edges with some, some bundled payments and this, that, and the other. However, um, there is <clears throat> increasing financial pressures on health systems under the current payment policy. And that's because we're shifting to more Medicare, where hospital margins are lower. Um, and in this schematic, um, you know, there's this perceived transition period in revenue where because we have a lot of different payers in the U.S., it's not clear that it would all happen at once or even if it could happen at once, this transition, uh, or even if it's a full transition, but we'll get back to that. But you could imagine that, well, if you were a decision maker in a health system, and you were trying to gauge our payment policies shifting, <clears throat> where do you stop and start saying we need to start investing in models of care and people who are going to help put in place those types of models and, and looking at the evidence? So um, when I'm, I'm now speaking to the non-proceduralist, uh, which is most neurologists and those of you here. So the hospital margins are shrinking. And that means for departments, at least in academics, and perhaps outside of academics, hospitals are a source of transfers to many academic uh, departments and practices. So they're having less to transfer. They're feeling that squeezed. Um, one of the um, persons from our central billing office described working with an insurer to get a payment like it's like being like doing the Tom and Jerry cartoon. For those of you who remember Tom and Jerry, so they used to beat each other up over whatever, and uh, he said, you're just basically playing this, this game back and forth. Um, and so uh, we're seeing a lot of interest in measuring productivity and patient experience, and I think a lot of that is the productivity is on the hospital margin issue of where, where's the money going to come from in the health system. The patient experience is because we've vendorized and commercialized um, rating patient experience, and so now it's, it's something that uh, seems to be driving competition. Still not so much, amazingly, on quality of care. And so there's a lot of tensions to um, departments to provide more access, be more productive, be nicer. Uh, I call the press game the race to the top, because all the ratings are skewed way up at the top, and I keep saying, well, it doesn't need anything some point, unless you're a real outlier down at the bottom, and yeah, that's fine, we'll screen those people out and move them up. But otherwise, it's just, it's just, you know, it's just a math accident, whether you're at 95th percentile or, or 50th percentile. Um, you have to work with, with 
really awful EMR systems. You have to be leaner, you don't need as much help, and, and all this. So where is there going to be the time and the incentive to start piloting and preparing for these kind of changes? Um, and I would just mention that there have been um, Commonwealth Fund and others have been really trying to look at, uh, this was an interesting um, report they did on looking at the evidence for what are what are effective um, interventions that have been published for reducing what they're calling low-value care. And uh, maybe not surprisingly, um, decision support uh, had a lot of articles that were effective. Um, some of these may be very effective, but there's just not a lot published. And look at risk sharing, which is what we were talking about. There's like very little out there. What was it, one article, two articles, and um, uncertain, which doesn't really mean much. So we have a lot of room to go on figuring that out. So I want to just walk through a couple of examples, again from neurology, about kind of breaking down why is it, you know, because I've had, I've been in meetings years ago mostly where people said, well, I understand, there's no problem with implementing good care. You just publish an article in the, the regional journal, the New England Journal, and then the next day everybody should practice, right? Right? You know, and I was like, well, I don't think it quite works that way. There's a lot of evidence that it's not that simple. Um, so <clears throat> think about the organization of stroke care delivery. Even way back in 2001, there was class grade A evidence that if patients are admitted to a, uh, a, a unit <clears throat> that includes a multidisciplinary team, of, of nurses and physicians with special expertise in stroke or rehab or both, the outcomes are better. Way, way back there, okay? And um, one of the fellows, Gretchen Burbeck, um, from Clinical Scholars back at UCLA, her project was to do a study of, in, two, uh, in, 2000, in 1998, but she surveyed a few years later and said, um, what were the resources for stroke care across all the acute care hospitals in California? And she did a lot of work tracking down somebody in all these hospitals who could answer these questions. It's a mail survey, but then a lot of work finding people and a pretty good response rate. And then linked that to um, a database that the state of California has in which all acute care admissions is a mandate to, to submit data to this database. It's called OSHPUT. And so she then was able to link um, the stroke data with different aspects of resources for stroke care that the hospitals had in place at the time. And um, what she found was that really the only thing, as she asked about different things, you know, like did you have um, checklists for your admission and this, that, and did you have a stroke specialist uh, available at your facility? The only thing that was associated with better outcome was actually having a multidisciplinary stroke team having the stroke service, where you had a team available to, to work with patients, whether they were, I don't think they had to be geographically co-located. And in here, the mortality was the same through one year, but by 30 days, it was the odds ratio for mortality was 0.84. They had data in the OSHPUT data set that had been linked through one year with, with other death indices. So that was one of the findings. But the other one was that only 19 or 7% of all the acute care hospitals way back in 1998, had a dedicated stroke service. Now, at that time, the evidence for um, the effectiveness of TBA had been out 
um, some years. So this was not like, well, why would there have been any? And even, you know, this is in 2008, um, Larry Goldstein did a survey of North Carolina hospitals, only 27%. And there's more like this. So you could imagine, you know, 10 years down the line, still most hospitals didn't have a stroke team. And so what did it take to change all that? Um, there wasn't a whole lot of change, as I understand it, in payment policy. Um, but what did change was there was a lot of um, uh, the advocacy organizations and eventually the Joint Commission got involved with saying, well, we're going to set benchmarks for what should be achieved to be able to get certain you know, kudos or recognitions as acute care hospitals for having these kind of resources in place at your hospital. And it was basically those kind of policy changes that drove to where we are today, which is that it is now most hospitals want to be some level of a stroke center, and they want the, they want to meet the Joint Commission um, recommendations in that regard. So this was an example of how diffusing something that would be better for outcomes was very slow, and what it took was some policy changes, in this case not around payment so much, but around uh, recognition. And that was on the inpatient side, remember, where I think it can be um, more tackleable, I call it, those kind of thoughts. So now I want to shift to some of the research that we've been doing, which is basically trying to generate an evidence base for alternative models for delivering outpatient chronic care. With the vision in mind, although I, when I started this work, I actually didn't realize that. But as the discussions about changing the way we pay for care have come into place, then this kind of evidence base um, is what can be, uh, can help fill the vacuum of, well, how would I organize care differently? I mean, I'll ask the neurologist later, I'm sure nobody could just stand up and tell me, oh, here's how we would set up a different way of evaluating acute vertigo. Or here's how we'd set up a way of delivering, um, you know, care for, um, uh, well, some of them may know something about ALS, perhaps, because maybe there's some foundations that is incentivizing a little bit of centers of excellence. But nothing, again, that is, is, is able to be financially sustained on its own. So um, in this work, the idea is this, is this is work to, again, develop evidence for alternative ways of delivering care, how services work. There's a set of stages. When I started, we didn't have any tools for measuring process or outcome measure of care, really, for neuro most neurologic conditions. So we have to spend some time doing that. And then you have to go in and think about, well, where is there variation? And we think about all, again, the work that came out of Dartmouth of pointing out, well, there's variation that nobody can explain. So that's a good starting point for figuring out if there's something to address. Um, and look to see if there's randomized trial evidence of care that improves outcomes. And where we are now is far short of that. OK, those are gaps in care. And then figure out, OK, well, what's driving that? And it's very analogous to doing lab research. You, you, would, you would identify an issue, and you try to figure out how to assay the issue, and then you try to figure out what's going on in the system and what's driving what you see in terms of um, uh, an anomaly in, in, a, in that system. And then use that data to pilot and create interventions. Because 
you can't just pull something off the shelf and say, well, this worked for problem X, why can't it work for problem Y? Problem Y may be due to a totally different set of issues. So you do need to map your interventions onto that and then test them because you're generating evidence. But in this case, the test is not of a new drug or a device, but it's a test of a new model versus usual care. So I'm going to walk you through a couple of these. We've done some work at Parkinson's disease, a relatively common neurodegenerative disease. It has not only the traditional motor manifestations, but a lot of non-motor manifestations, cognitive, autonomic, psychiatric. So it went from a disorder that, you know, I, neurologists were a little tunneled into the motor part, and we now really recognize that it has a lot of wide-ranging manifestations. And, you know, certainly it's a high-profile um, condition. And so the first stage, as I said, was we didn't have, when we started this work, we were very interested in maybe there's better ways of providing Parkinson's care than sending an individual to see a subspecialist who you hoped might have a social worker and a nurse and other people to help them manage. But you couldn't count on it because the only payment was to pay that doctor for seeing the patient. So we started with a review of the literature. Is there enough evidence to say there are things that we know could be um, uh, improve outcomes for, for Parkinson's disease? And there was actually plenty of evidence. We used a modified Delphi process with a movement disorder expert panel to rate these and come up with a top set of indicators. And here would be an example. If a patient has a diagnosis of PD and has impairment of ADLs, then they should be started on one of these treatments within three, three months. Um, all patients with PD should be asked at least annually about the occurrence of falls. Those are things you can measure. You can measure from medical records or surveys. Um, and um, that's what we mean by process measures of care that are linked to outcomes or there's some evidence to support. So the second step is, okay, well, if everybody's already meeting all those indicators, then we don't need to go do this project. The care the way we have it now is working great. Um, but what we found, and this is what we thought we'd find, is that there was a lot of gaps in care. So this is an example. I mean, there's plenty, plenty more evidence, but one of these was uh, if we asked patients, uh, did you receive education and counseling on certain key care indicators, and half said that this was an unmet need. Um, so there were, um, we also had some chart review data, which I have here. We did a regional medical record review across a, a system of VA hospitals and asked about non-motor symptoms and looked in their medical records. And this is the percentage of Parkinson's patients who had these different non-motor symptoms assessed annually. And so again, this is fall short of anything close to 100%. And you would argue, well, if you're not assessing for these things, then, um, or at least it's not documented that you are, then we don't know that that these things are being managed and we're preventing, you know, ideally you'd be intervening and preventing morbidity. So the findings from this identified low patient knowledge, high unmet need, and suboptimal management of non-motor symptoms. And there were a number of other things. I'm just giving you sort of some highlights. And then we said, the next step would be, well, what are the barriers to care? Like, why isn't there a better assessment of non-motor symptoms? Or why are patients not... Um, or why do they have these unmet needs? And we investigated a number of factors. I'm just showing you three of them that were some of the key ones that contributed to the model that we designed. One was looking at primary care physician knowledge, um, whether involvement of movement disorder subspecialists seemed to be important or not. 
and uh, motor and non-motor um, assessment of symptoms. And so this was a study we did. This was another clinical scholar, Kari Schwartztrauber. We were actually doing this for a different purpose, but we, um, one of the findings was we were, we were looking at, we'd surveyed a, a set of um, PCPs from four states and neurologists. We were actually looking at factors that incentivized um, manage, different management or whether they would refer to a specialist or not. Um, but one of the things we did was we had not, we measured separately their knowledge about uh, a transient neurological event, Parkinson's and dementia, and then we asked about their likelihood to refer. And that you don't need for this purpose. But um, then we had, the, we said, well, the neurologist score on our knowledge questions is we converted it to a T-score of 50, the where did the PCPs fall? And here what we found, what I've been illustrating is that on dementia and transient neurologic event, it wasn't so different. But on Parkinson's, it looked like there was a lower level of knowledge among the PCPs about um, uh, management. And in another source of data, we did a chart review of the 400 veterans, and we classified whether that veteran over the prior, I think it was two years, had seen a movement disorder specialist at least once, or had seen a general neurologist but not a movement disorder specialist, or had only seen non-neurologists. And then we looked at, when we put people in those buckets, how good was their adherence to these quality measures, either initial treatment of Parkinson's or treatment of wearing off. And indeed, it looks like if you were the sub, people who've seen a subspecialist had higher levels, higher quality of care. It's the, high, the percent of patients means higher adherence to these quality measures, right? And among the non-neurologists, there was lower adherence. So it looks like there was an association, at least for management of these motor symptoms. That's what this slide was. So as we're putting this together, it looked like one thing that we needed was to assess for and make sure people got in to see a subspecialist if they were having certain kinds of motor issues. And care protocols needed to include standardized assessments of non-motor manifestations, because a lot of these were being missed and other things. But again, I'm just trying to walk you through some examples. So then we went and held um, some stakeholder work groups. We were working in the, the um, Southern California and uh, um, uh, Nevada VAs uh, um, through a, a Parkinson's network that we had um, established through funding from the VA. And um, we sat down and looked at all the evidence and agreed on a set of evidence-based care measures, identified what the framework for this care model would be, and then developed and pilot-tested these protocols. So it wasn't like we pulled something off the shelf, but we did use some frameworks, and this is the chronic care model framework, which may be familiar to some of you. It's actually pretty old, um, but it has a lot of, amazingly, a lot of the key elements, which would be are you the, the things that could improve chronic care delivery should include self-management support, changing the healthcare delivery system that is bringing in other team members, using decision support, using clinical information systems better. It's not saying any one of those, but really putting that together. And a key part of this, again, I get back to is this team care aspect. And, and I, um, my husband's a general internist, so I. I have an affinity for, for um, and a lot of colleagues in, in general medicine. Certainly, I've heard many neurologists say, 
my patient needs a social worker and I'm not a social worker. I mean, so, so there's something about the fact that you, you need different pieces, you need different people in your workforce team in order to implement evidence-based best practices efficiently. You could have doctors doing these assessment checklists, but honestly, do you, do you really think that's, you know, is that a good use of their time? It's an expensive use of time. Um, so we took this data, we decided we wanted to try out a model that, that was framed differently than standard fee-for-service care. And so aspects of this included, for example, we had what we call a care manager. In this case, we decided it should be a nurse because there were a lot of kind of medical aspects to Parkinson's disease care. And the care manager is the person who was really doing this proactive assessment. Instead of saying we're going to wait until the patient with the chronic condition has a flare-up or something, their depression gets bad enough, nobody's picked it up, but then they have some bad event or, or it gets very bad, but rather we're going to proactively put in place an ongoing monitoring of patients. We're going to look at it from a population perspective, meaning this nurse care manager will have a panel that she's responsible for. But again, it's not waiting for issues, but actually proactively surveilling the, the, the patient population. And there's protocols to coordinate care with different subspecialists that everybody's been at the table and agreed on if she finds that there are certain kinds of issues. And then there's a whole host of self-management training and tools and ways to link people proactively to resources in the, in the VA. And this is sort of a schematic from the veteran's perspective. Uh, this is for the trial, so I have enrollment randomization, but if they get the intervention, they immediately get an assessment. It triggers different interventions. If things are flagged, uh, those interventions are enacted. And then um, there's monitoring and follow-up and a reassessment every six months. And this is an example of we use, we develop modules for these assessments. Um, we used a, a, a simple uh, IT system to track it. Um, and, um, and then there was a care plan where they could document what they did and who was, who was then uh, looped in and referred to. There were a lot of, actually a lot of resources in the VA, and so, uh, but a lot of people just were never plugged into them. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, this was, uh, and, the, and the veterans had some self-management tools that they and their family members worked with. So we generated, uh, so we designed this model, developed the protocols, and then really the only way, or the best way to generate evidence is to do a randomized trial. And so at this point, we're ready for the final step to generate that evidence by um, enrolling a group of veterans in this um, trial, so they're randomized to either getting the intervention or care as usual. Um, and then we followed them for 18 months. And so um, the bottom line is that we showed that there was a 20% a greater adherence to these guidelines uh, for um, um, management. Um, did not show a difference in outcomes in this study, and there's a lot of things that you could you could hypothesize for that, but certainly the process measures of care through 18 months were substantially higher. Now, what you'd hope would happen with this is that um, you could go to the, in this case, the VA, the health system, and say, we now have this evidence and we'd like to see this rolled out nationally, um, as well as perhaps other health systems. I'm going to walk you quickly through another project we've done in dementia care. 
Same set of steps. Again, thinking about all the gaps in care, there's pretty strong evidence that if you give caregivers respite services, it'll delay nursing home placement. That's old evidence. It's still around. And yet, think about it. Who pays for respite care for caregivers? I don't, I don't know any health systems that do. Right? It's, it's, it's either you pay for it or you get it maybe if you get connected to a social service agency. So that's an evidence-based, uh, with a medical outcome, I would argue, nursing home placement. But it's for services that are not provided in most health systems. And yet when we went and asked uh, a, a sample of caregivers from three health plans in Southern California, we surveyed them and we said, did you ever receive some or all of these needed services? And it's fewer than, you know, the, the highest one is 30% had received even some of these services. And these were people where the mean duration of their, of the person that they're caring for ha having dementia was two and a half years. So these were not like newly diagnosed. There have been a number of studies where they surveyed physicians and asked them, uh, okay, here's one, you have a homebound agitated dementia patient. Uh, back in 96, anyway, half of them said we treat their agitation with medication as first line. And, and that's certainly now not recommended. Um, so there's a whole lot of uh, other evidence, and I'm not going to show all of it, but the pattern that came out of this, we saw that there was a lot about care for dementia that was provided by community agencies, and yet those were never connected very well to the medical system. The, typically, the community agencies who we sat at the table and talked with said, well, finally some patient, you know, some caregiver got so frustrated, they talked to their neighbor or somebody and they said, we'll call the Alzheimer's Association. So not, not very well um, connected. And then we were looking at what are factors that we would want to build a model on to address this. And so we, one of them was, is, it, is there something about primary care providers' perceptions of what they can do? And we asked them, this is an example question, primary care providers can significantly improve the quality of life for older people with this condition. Well, not surprisingly, 60% strongly agree for heart disease and diabetes, but only half that many for dementia care. So when you look at the usual care for dementia, it's pretty uncoordinated, and very crisis-oriented. And this is 20 years ago, and I would argue it's somewhat better now. Um, and certainly in the last few years, there have been more resources and certainly a lot of activism from the um, Alzheimer's community. Um, but when we started approaching this, we were looking at a model that looked more like this and actually attempting again to generate evidence for policymakers that could change the way we're, we're paying for this. And, and, and uh, this is a case just to illustrate pretty classic. Uh, Eight-year-old with Alzheimer's, lives with his wife, has congestive heart failure, can't remember to take his meds, resists his wife when she wants to tell him to take his meds. He's having hallucinations about water, roams the yard, the wife is stressed, doesn't know when to take the patient to see the physician, um, can't afford respite services, was given a phone number but can't find the phone number, they're really stressed out. This is a typical scenario. Wife gave up trying to get the patient to, to take his meds, had admissions for congestive heart failure, was wandering, taken to a local ER, blah, blah, blah. The caregiver gets depressed. Now the daughter has to leave work to help out. Patient sent to a nursing home, got a UTI, rehospitalized. This is a classic story. 
replete with lots of avoidable hospitalizations, high cost utilization, adverse caregiver outcomes, adverse patient outcomes. So the idea of this model is that you could probably intervene if you delivered care differently and you were incentivized to do that by coordinating care better between the traditional medical system and community agencies, addressing issues of provider knowledge and attitudes perhaps, um, taking into account time constraints because what you can't do is say, okay, primary care provider, you go do this much more work. You know, that, that's just not going to work and it doesn't make sense. Uh, there was a lack of proactive follow-up when we were first working with the social workers from the community organizations in this project. They basically said, the work we do is we get called about a crisis, we intervene, we might do one follow-up and that's it. Nothing proactive. And then a lot of caregivers who will say to you, I wasn't trained to take care of someone with dementia. I mean, that, that wasn't what I signed up for and I don't know how to do it. So um, based on these, we put together some concepts that the traditional doctor visit-based care really obviously doesn't work so well for many chronic diseases. And if we had a model with care coordination where we were partnering with community agencies around certain resources that they could deliver, um, better caregiver self-management, we could use decision support to track what we're doing and share our care plans, then wouldn't that be potentially produce better outcomes, and we really want to generate evidence for policymakers. Again, the chronic care model is sort of loosely a framework for this, but notice here, this issue with dementia care, look at the things you'd like to be able to do, and none of those features are compensated under fee-for-service care, right? So we built this model where we call it re-engineered team dementia care that involved Again, this, in this case, usually it was a social worker. This happened, there was one registered nurse in our trial, but most of them were social workers because for dementia care delivery, that seemed to be a better fit as the care manager. I worked again with physician champions, but um, worked as a wraparound to usual care for the primary care physicians. Um, empowering caregivers with self-management skills, have a panel of patients that are identified in the health plan, go in and assess off the bat and reassess on a regular basis because you're trying to do a preventive model, a proactive approach rather than reacting to crises. And we have protocols identified within the healthcare organizations when the dementia care managers would interface with primary care or with other providers as they identify care needs. And they actively interface with community agencies even we had a shared IT resource, which I look back and I go, I don't know how we did that, where the care plans and all the assessments were shared with the community agencies, again, with the permission of the caregivers and patients. So there wasn't all this duplication of assessments and duplication of efforts, and so very streamlined. We had this thing, Case Tracker, with some you know, startup company 20 years ago in, in Northern California, and they were all Star Trek fans, so all of their things are called like Care Tracker Enterprise and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, it was a great system. It was the best one we've, we've used. And then again, we wanted to generate evidence for policymakers. So you need to do a randomized trial. So we uh, engaged three healthcare organizations in San Diego, randomized 18 clinics, enrolled Medicare patients with a diagnosis of dementia, and we enrolled 408 patient and caregiver dyads. 
and they were randomized, the clinics were randomized to intervention versus usual care, so it's a cluster trial. And basically we found that if the, the x-axis is four dimensions of quality, so we clustered our assessment quality indicators, treatment, education, and safety into these aggregate scores. And again, 100% means full adherence and zero is none. And so even on an intention to treat basis, so some people don't participate in your intervention even if you randomize them to it, but we analyze this intention to treat. And as you can see, at the end of the uh, uh, one-year period, the quality measures were, were more than double for the intervention arm compared to the other. These are process of care measures. We also looked at actual receipt of services, again, significantly higher in the intervention arm, um, noting that not everybody might have been needing all of these services over that period, although most of these you could. So very highly positive. We even found improved patient outcomes, caregiver confidence in caregiving on, on these. And these were our secondary outcomes in the trial. One of the things we went back and looked at is, well, was it just having this care manager or was it the team aspect? So this is a post-hope analysis. Again, the y-axis here is higher quality care, lower on one of our indicators. This is safety. And we went back and looked at all the charting and said, was it just the care manager involved? Or was it the care manager and there was evidence of interaction, back and forth interaction with a primary care provider, with someone from the community agency? or among all three. And you can see that, yes, having that care manager made a big difference, but you've got another bump in quality from the interaction of the team. So if you thought about that case I presented, how might it have been different in this model? Well, the patient caregiver would have been contacted by the care manager, identified from administrative data in the health plan. They would have conducted a home assessment. They would have identified the problems that were ongoing, what could have created a care plan. The care manager would have made sure that all these things were carried out, that the caregiver was connected to the Alzheimer's Association, followed through to make sure that that person got the respite services, that they were enrolled in the Safe Return Program. They would have, the care manager would have ensured that the patient got into the congestive heart failure clinic and would have included education of the caregiver about warning signs and would have been referred for their own depression treatment. And then they would have proactively followed up and reassessed. So definitely a preventive model. And the differences in outcomes hypothetically are uh, the caregiver comes in a couple of times to the doctor. There's no further hospitalizations for the heart failure. The behavior problems are now managed with non-pharmacologic strategies that the caregiver learned from the community agency staff. Respite care continues. The daughter doesn't need to give up work and come and help out. Yard secure, caregiver's depression results. So that's, that's how that outcome pathway would be different under this model. So when we published this, it was an editorial. Uh, there were two papers, actually, at the time that were, were related. But this was some early evidence about this kind of approach. And the editorial actually said, the usual fee-for-service approach works poorly for dementia care. Patients need medical care coordinated among multiple team members and integrated with social and community-based services. And this is 2006. It's time for Medicare to pay for team-based case management services. And we went around. We were so excited. We got an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and we had this successful trial. And we went back to the groups we've worked with, and we thought, 
look at this, you know, quality of care is doubled. There's also a line in here, if this was a drug, you'd be out getting, you know, an indication to go to market. You know, such a big effect. <laughs> I literally had one group of administrators say to me, well, that's nice, but we, if you're saying we might have fewer hospitalizations, we would lose money from doing that. So we can't invest in this. And I literally was like, wow. And that's when I think it became clearer. And, and my mentor, um, Bob Brooks, which I was so oh, I can't believe that. He said, you know, you're, you're contributing to the evidence base. And with, there will be changes down the line. And then this evidence is going to be part of what will, will fill that change. And so that's, uh, at least in part for me, where I see the, the vision of, of this value-based payment. And what I call this is it's putting, you know, putting value-based care, with meaning by that I mean quality counts and team care and bringing in people who are not the most expensive people to do the work that really should be, a, you know, other people on the team are better at. Um, putting that kind of team care on fee-for-service payments. So literally, the Alzheimer's Association, based on the study and others that have come out in the last 10 years, got a CPT code approved to um, pay for this kind of, of um, care delivery, or at least some aspect. Now, that's not value-based care like I described in that ideal. There's no really risk here. It's giving somebody a carrot to do something to reorganize the way they deliver care because they're going to get a unit of payment for it. But it's a step in that direction. And there are more of these kinds of what I call like payment codes for things that you weren't getting credit for doing but are really getting at coordinating care. There's now a virtual check-in code you can get paid for. And the idea from CMS is if instead of making that patient come in for a visit to see how their depression medication is working, you can do a phone call. And in the old days, nobody ever got paid for all those phone calls, and you had to have your staff paid out of your surpluses or your P&L statements. Now there's at least some way to pay for it. It's not value-based payment in the sense of, here, take, take some risk. Here's a lump of money. Put together the team you want to do it. But it's giving us some opportunities. And this is uh, from the Commonwealth Fund, Eric Schneider, Came up with this, and again, it's 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 one of the different phases of thinking about change in across industries. Healthcare is pretty conservative, would you say? I mean, you know, it's it's not something that we change our payment policies in a big way in this country with a lot of without a lot of you know drama and a lot of time. But uh, you know, if, if you're gonna, I think of this risk-based payment changes is more on the end of, this could really uh, generate some innovations in healthcare. I, I was at a talk a couple of years ago at, at the IOM, and they, they had a speaker who, who has been following all this, and he said, you know, health systems are sitting on a lot of innovation. They can do a lot. They're not incentivized financially right now. Nor, you know, and again, if I was CEO and I'm trying to meet the bottom line, unless it made sense financially, you can't go under just because you think that this is better care. And I want to make one last point here about, um, uh, this is an interesting piece um, out of um, uh, this New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst um, about uh, a uh, family medicine practice 
And they were just illustrating that a lot of people think team care is, I've got to add a nurse practitioner. Okay, well, you can add a nurse practitioner and you would double what the primary care physician can see here, and it's all laid out. That you have your patients between 8 and 11, and the nurse practitioner has their patients, and there's an assistant. But this is really coordinated care. This is really team care. It's something where you're basically saying, let's look at our panel of patients, and let's look at who comes in the door, and who are the right people on our team to address which issues, and how do we incorporate patient education into that, and interdisciplinary communication. Look at this. It's the same personnel, but they've organized that three-hour block very differently. And that's not just, okay, who they plugged in. There's a lot of protocols and planning around that. Um, to an administrator, I would say, instead of the 14 patients that were seen in the first three hours of the day in the prior slide, 30 patients were seen or contacted some way in this model. So, so this, the beauty of it is, again, is you can improve access and you can probably produce better outcomes from a model like this. But, but where are the incentives to drive doing that? Um, we were talking again last night, is, is this kind of change in payment policy, is it really coming? How long will it take? As I said, will global warming take over before value-based payment comes? Who knows? Um, it seems to be on different administrations' radar, although you know, I don't, I don't know right now. The current administration seems to be going after drug payments. Um, but they made a statement, uh, Alex Azar did, back in March of 2018, seeming to say that they were supporting this transition, but, but we'll see. And finally, um, the no pain, no gain, and that is you, you can nibble away at this stuff, but until you put in something more wholesale where the health system is at risk, it's probably not going to be enough incentive to drive those real innovations and changes. We're all pretty cautious people, I think, and it would be hard to say you're going to go out there um, unless really the policies change. At least that's my belief. Now, again, whether they're going to change, we'll see. So when one door closes, another one opens, and the end of the quote, there's no quiz. But we often look so long and so regretfully upon the closed door that we don't see the one which is open for us. That's the part of the quote few people know, but, but um, most of us don't. And so I would say the challenge for academic medicine is how are we, I mean, we're really well positioned to be the ones inventing, innovating, driving this. What's it going to take? Agitating our health system leaders and biding our time and putting ideas in place until some bigger changes in payment come about. Um, we shall see. Um, it takes a village to do this kind of work. Here's one of our our teams, um, this is actually from our Stroke Prevention um, uh, Center uh, in Health Disparities, um, but I would say that, that uh, as I said, it takes a lot of groups of people to work on these kinds of uh, um, studies, and thank you very much.